Greetings, everyone, and welcome to the podcast, Hidden Signs. I'm your host. My name is Jeff Murray. I'm a professor of marketing at the University of Arkansas. Today's episode continues our discussion of sign value and sign systems. Remember in episode three, when I was talking about culture? I mentioned that stories are passed on from one generation to the next. This creates an interesting question for us. If most signs are hidden, if we are not fully aware of them, how do we pass them on? How do these sign systems become part of us? This is an important topic. It is part of enculturation or socialization. In my last few episodes, discussing authenticity and sign value, I used the phrase prediscursive. By this, I meant deep-seated knowledge or understanding that influences behavior, but we're not fully aware of this knowledge. Thus, it isn't raised to the level of discourse. It is pre-discursive. In short, we're not completely aware of this knowledge, so we just don't talk about it. Recall that we use distressed genes as an illustration. Distressed genes have sign value. They are sold at a higher price, and they sell out faster. But if you ask consumers what the frayed hems and stringy holes mean, they can't tell you. Distressed, sign value, is influencing our actions. But one can't articulate distressed. It is prediscursive. So how do we learn it? If it is prediscursive, people aren't talking about it. So no one can teach it to you. How in the world does it get into our heads? And how is it that we share this knowledge? Sociologists explain that this knowledge, or these understandings, come from just living in the culture for a long period of time soaking up the cultural flow as we participate. They call this socialization. But if you ask them to define this in more detail, they often stumble. At the end of the day, we don't know exactly how this works. But like everything else in academia, we have lots of ideas, lots of theories. I'm going to discuss my two favorite theorists of socialization, and couch their ideas in the context of how we learn hidden signs. At the same time, this is helping us answer a broader question. How do we learn to consume? Suppose that you are blessed with long, silky hair. You've had it for most of your life, and it's part of your identity. And then one day, rather impulsively, you ask your hairstylist to cut it off. You are now sporting an elegantly unkempt, purposely tangled, short hairstyle. The next morning, you begin your daily routine. Walking to your favorite coffee shop, sitting down with your friend, and beginning a conversation. As the conversation unfolds, you search your friend's eyes for any sign that they like or dislike your new hairstyle. You step into your friend's mind or self 
and imagine how you appear through their eyes. You also imagine their judgment of you. At the same time, your friend is stepping into your mind or self and imagining how you would like them to react. Your friend knows that they need to be careful here. They want you to feel good about your new haircut, even if they don't really like it. You are taking each other's role and looking back at yourself, imagining how you appear through the eyes of the other. An empathetic connection. Intersubjectivity. This is friendship. Charles Horton Cooley was an American sociologist, born in 1864 in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and died in 1929, also in Ann Arbor. He became famous for drawing attention to this empathetic connection, for theorizing it. For Cooley, this is key to the deep learning I'm talking about called socialization. He called this the looking glass self. Upon completion of his Ph.D. in philosophy in 1894, Cooley became a professor at the University of Michigan. He played a prominent role in the development of a theoretical tradition called symbolic interactionism. Cooley was a daydreamer. Much of his dreaming life and rich imagination had a substantial influence on his ideas. Cooley wanted to show that the human mind was not something separate from its environment. He believed that it was part of others and part of the social context. He really believed that we are all in this together. And it was culture that made this possible. A philosopher might say, Cooley wanted to abandon the Cartesian disjunction between the human mind and the external world. Think back to the two friends in the coffee shop. My self awakens through the eyes of my friend. And my friend's self awakens when they take my role and look back at themselves. This intersubjective process binds us together. If we are all doing this all the time in society, then self is not an entity that exists only in me, my self. It is something broader, a cultural phenomenon. Cooley summarized his concept, looking glass self, with three principles. The first is that you can imagine how you appear through the eyes of the other person. Here, I step into the self of the other person. I take the role of the other, and I look back at myself and imagine how I appear from their perspective. The second is that you imagine the judgment of this other person. So here, I imagine what they think of me, my appearance and behavior. And finally, the third is that you feel some sense of pride, happiness, guilt, or shame based on the imagined judgment of the other person. If I feel a positive emotion, like pride or happiness, this reinforces my appearance and behavior. 
On the other hand, if I feel a negative emotion like guilt or shame, I may change my appearance or behavior. Well, for Cooley, this is a natural process that is repeated between yourself and others. If everyone in society is continually doing this to each other, we are all interconnected in a web of meaning and therefore not separate from our cultural context. Remember Geertz's definition of culture? A web of signification. This is a good start. It helps to explain shared pre-discursive knowledge and therefore intersubjectivity. There is just one big problem with this theory of socialization. In order to do this, we need to understand the perspective of the other. And this means that we have already been socialized. Right? So we need a theory that helps us understand how one learns to take the role of the other. George Herbert Mead was an American philosopher born in 1863 in South Hadley, Massachusetts. He is regarded as one of the founders of symbolic interactionism. One of Mead's first academic positions was at the University of Michigan in 1891. There, he met Cooley, who became a close friend and influence. A few years later, Mead moved to the University of Chicago where he taught until his death in 1931. Mead set out to answer the question that Cooley made so apparent. How does one learn to take the role of the other? In a very famous book entitled Mind, Self, and Society, Mead wrote that the development of mind and self was only possible by taking the role of the other. Mind and self are deeply cultural. Throughout his career, Mead made the point over and over that learning to take the role of the other is developmental, fundamentally based on language and signs. He was focusing on primary socialization. This is the first few years of life, the time when the child is learning language and how to interact with others. Mead believed that there were three distinct stages to learning how to take the role of the other. The first is called the preparatory stage. Here, the young child imitates the caretaker without interpreting and understanding most of the meaning that creates the context. If you have children or have spent time taking care of a young child, you know exactly what I'm talking about. For example, When my son was one and a half, or maybe two, I really can't remember what age he was. He used to shave with me. I really enjoyed this. We have two sinks. I would add a stepping stool to one and give my son a spoon. And we would both apply shaving cream and carefully shave our faces. What a nice memory. Honestly, my son had no idea what we were doing. It was pure imitation. I can also recall sitting on the sofa with him and watching Razorback football. This was before he was speaking language. We would point at the screen, laugh together, and just make sounds. When we made a touchdown, I would throw up my hands and scream. And so would he. And then we would laugh and make noises together. 
As these contexts were repeated over and over, and language gradually develops, more and more meaning begins to soak in. Not so much in a cognitively aware, prefrontal cortex, executive-type reasoning way. It is just absorbed. Repetition of context and language development reinforce each other, increasing understanding. For Mead, this wasn't just a child development, psychological issue. This was also a sociological, cultural, and philosophical issue. How does one develop a self? The second is called the play stage. Mead observed that, over time, imitation becomes more detailed and refined. Practice makes perfect. Practicing imitation enables the gradual accumulation of communication skills. These skills are needed to begin to converge on the meanings associated with the context. For example, over time, my son began to notice that my razor and his spoon were different, and that spoons were for eating. He began to inquire, curious about this difference. I would explain that razors are sharp and that I had whiskers, and that he would have whiskers someday. But for now, a spoon is safer. Note that the context, or sign system, is becoming richer and more complex, at the same time that language and communication skills are developing. Language and sign systems are inseparable. Well, this is happening for every cultural context for my son. Sleeping, eating, play, park, and preschool contexts. As repetition increases, more and more associations are forged. Memory is developing the same time that language is developing. And Mead would say, mind and self are also developing. Note that Mead would say, this isn't a psychological process. This is a cultural process. It is at this stage that the child can begin to take the role of the other, but only a significant other, the person who spends the most time with them. For example, my son could take the role of his mother and look back at himself and evaluate his behavior through her eyes. But note that his experience was not yet extensive enough for him to understand that mom was also a cultural role. Again, this is not cognitive awareness. It develops by being immersed in the context, repetition, the forging of associations, the development of language, and so on. Mead studied child development from a social-psychological perspective the same time that he studied philosophy and sociology. Recall the title of his book, Mind, Self, and Society. You are probably thinking, he should have reversed this. Society, self, and mind. And you would be right. He should have. Now, before I explain the third stage, I have a quiz question for you. Just testing your softball knowledge. 
Ah, blue sky, a bright sun, summertime. And you find yourself on the softball field with your friends. And you are up to bat. There is one out, and your teammate is on first base. Eyeing carefully the pitch, you swing and connect with the ball, a fast grounder to the shortstop. The shortstop, who happens to be your next-door neighbor and drinking buddy, grabs the grounder with the skill of a seasoned professional. So here is the question. Where does the shortstop throw the ball? Well, what do you think? Yes, correct. To second base, trying for a double out. Now, we know this because we understand the role of everyone on the field. The role of the pitcher, the batter, the shortstop, the second baseman, the runner on first, and so on. If you are listening in another part of the world, just substitute your own sport. Soccer, rugby, cricket, field hockey, volleyball, quidditch, or any other sport that involves coordination of a team. When we understand everyone's role, we can play the game. What if we understood everyone's cultural role in society? Parent, teacher, priest, executive, professor, politician, and so on. Well, we would be able to play the game of life and enter the cultural flow. Mead called the third stage the game stage. As experience deepens, the child begins to gradually generalize roles. Roles such as parent, teacher, and coach are understood as something separate from specific individuals. It is at this stage that the child begins to take the role of a generalized other. It is also at this stage that socialization becomes a form of social control. For example, if you have ever said, Oh, I can't do that. They won't like it. You are taking the role of the amorphous they, the generalized other. For Mead, it is this third stage where one develops a self. Note that the self is deeply cultural, not something separate from its environment, but something that is fully part of a historical totality, a web of signification. Suppose you were shopping for a new car. You're thinking, maybe a pickup truck or SUV. You look at some top-rated trucks, Ford and Ram, and also some best-selling SUVs, Nissan, Subaru Forester, and Range Rover. You really consider the alternatives. Cars are extensions of identity. They are value-expressive. This is a high-involvement decision. Certainly, the Ram truck or Subaru Forester have very different sign value. As you consider the alternatives, you think of yourself owning a particular model and brand, driving this car day to day, picturing yourself in it, picking up your friends and family, showing up to parties, celebrations, and events. People begin to associate the model and brand with you. In short, it becomes an extension of your identity, and the sign value of the truck or SUV says something about you. 
As you sit in the Ram truck or Subaru Forester, struggling with your decision, you take the role of someone important to you, a person who represents your peers, and you look back at yourself and imagine their judgment. What would they think if I chose this car? Maybe you want to push against the norm and find distinction, or maybe you want to conform to the norm and find integration. Well, this imagined judgment may influence your decision. This means that the science system encircling and creating the context is part of the decision. This is the looking glass self. The mind and self cannot be separated from cultural context. This is the point that both Cooley and Mead were trying to make. In so many ways, they were pushing against psychological explanations. As stated earlier, they wanted to abandon the Cartesian disjunction between the human mind and the external world. In the last couple of episodes, I have talked about the importance of sign value for marketing. In this episode, I asked a different question. If our knowledge of sign value is largely prediscursive, meaning that we are not completely aware of the knowledge that is influencing our behavior, how do we learn it? How does it get into our heads? And how is it that we share this knowledge? Well, Cooley and Mead would say that we have been socialized to a historical totality, a unique, complex, cultural era, that we are deeply embedded in a world of hidden signs, a world that has enabled us to develop self through symbolic interaction. These hidden signs aren't separate from us. They are us. We can therefore enter the cultural flow. We can play the game. I hope that you enjoyed this episode on socialization. This is Hidden Signs. My name is Jeff Murray. Special thanks to Seth Murray for composing original music for this podcast. Thank you for listening.